We're thinking about grace tonight. We're thinking about um, grace alone. And we've picked a couple of Bible readings out that hopefully will fit in with the sermon tonight. The first of the readings tonight is taken from the book of Ephesians. Can I encourage you not to look it up in the Pew Bibles? We're going to use another one later in Romans 5. But this is Ephesians chapter 2. And Susie's going to read it from a, a really lovely translation of the Bible called The Voice. So Ephesians 2, 1 to 9, from The Voice. Susie. As for you, don't you remember how you used to just exist? Corpses, dead in life, buried by transgressions, wandering the course of this perverse world. You were the offspring of the prince of the power of air. Oh, how he owned, it, owned you just as he still controls those living in disobedience. I'm not talking about the outsiders alone. We were all guilty of falling headlong for the persuasive passions of this world. We all have had our fill of indulging the flesh and mind, obeying impulses to follow perverse thoughts motivated by dark powers. As a result, our natural inclinations led us to be children of wrath, just like the rest of humankind. But God, with the unfathomable richness of his love and mercy, focused on us, united us with the anointed one, and infused our lifeless souls with life, even though we were buried under mountains of sin, and saved us by his grace. He raised us up with him, and seated us in the heavenly realms with our beloved Jesus the anointed, the liberating king. He did this for a reason, so that for all eternity we will stand as a living testimony to the incredible riches of his grace and kindness that he freely gives to us by uniting us with Jesus the Anointed. For it's by God's grace that you have been saved. You receive it through faith. It was not our plan or our effort. It is God's gift, pure and simple. You didn't earn it, not one of us did. So don't go around bragging that you must have done something amazing. I don't know whether you've seen the programme on Tuesday night. Um, the BBC showed a programme called Stacey Dooley Investigates. Did anyone see it? Um, it? It was fairly horrific for those who have watched it. I'm sure it was about... Well, I'll tell you what it was about. Stacey Dooley is a, a well-known journalist within the BBC, and she rose to fame, I suppose, back 2009 or so, um, appearing in a number of documentaries highlighting child labour issues in developing countries. And in the episode shown last Tuesday, Stacey was in the Philippines to investigate Filipino mothers who sexually abuse children, often their own children, and often in front of live webcams in exchange for money. During the investigation, Stacey followed the work of a homeland security mission in the US whose task was to arrest the mothers um, who were selling their own children for sex. The programme was extremely distressing and really difficult to watch, but I think she was touching on a really important issue in our world today. So what I would like to do is set our prayers for others in the context of that Stacey Dooley programme during the week. I don't know whether I would encourage you to watch it or not. It was really, I know Trevor, you said you've seen it. It was harrowing. Um, it's just hard to believe that mothers would treat their children this way. It's a fascinating program, probably worth, worth a watch if you're up to it. Our prayers are going to be based around that tonight, focusing on child trafficking and child abuse.
Father in heaven, in the Psalms, David reminds us that we are to give justice to the poor and the orphan. That we should uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. In the book of Romans, Paul encourages us, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Lord, we pray for those who are not free. For the 50 million people in our world who are owned and exploited and enslaved by others. For the 13,000 women and children and men in modern day slavery here in the UK. For the women and children who are exploited in prostitution. For the men forced to work in factories and farms for little or no money. Lord, how do we even begin to start praying into situations like this? Realistically, what can we do to make a difference? We begin by praying for transformation. For those who seek to make money at others' expense, we pray they would be convicted by God of their wrongdoing and turn away from this life. For those who exploit, abuse, inflict violence, pain and fear on others, we pray their hearts would be changed and instead they would be filled with compassion. For those who participate in abuse by paying for sexual services, we pray for their eyes to be opened and they will put an end to this behaviour. We pray also for the victims for children now in the care of local authorities, that they would receive the support they need and the safety and, uh, and their safety and influence from their traffickers. We pray for survivors as they recover from the ordeal and try to rebuild their lives again. We pray also, Lord, for those who provide support to victims. We pray wisdom and compassion for organizations like the Salvation Army, Women's Aid, the Snowdrop Project, the Poppy Project, and many, many more. For social workers, foster carers, and special advocates and guardians working with trafficked children, we pray for police officers that they would know and spot the signs of trafficking and exploitation. We pray for police commissioners, constables, commanders, that they would make investigating these crimes a priority. And for our politicians, that they will take a lead in addressing these issues with great conviction and determination. Finally, Lord, we need to take time to say thank you for new legislation for new initiatives that are aimed at better supporting and protecting victims. We thank you that Jesus is good news to the poor and freedom to the captive and the oppressed. We thank you that no person and no situation is hidden from his sight or beyond the power of his grace. We thank you, Lord, that despite our timidity and our reservations, 
that your spirit in the lives of your people can help overcome evil with good. Amen. We have a second Bible reading tonight. It's from the book of Romans, chapter 5. Gillian's going to come and read it to us, and I think you'll find it on page 1132 in the Pew Bibles. Romans, chapter 5, page 1132. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of the Lord. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. 
the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We've had two Bible readings, uh, which we didn't read directly from our own Bibles, but could I invite you now, please, to turn with me to two short passages. Uh, One again in the letter of Paul to the Romans, uh, reading uh, from chapter 3. Now, in my Bible, it's page 1131. I'm not sure if it's the same. I think it may be. Page 1131, a very short section there, Romans chapter 3 and verse, the very end of verse 22. where Paul is making the point that every one of us have exactly the same problem and God has provided a solution for every single one of us. And so he says there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God but are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now we're going to leave that uh, verse for a moment and could I invite you to turn on to uh, 2 Corinthians and chapter 9, and reading from verse 6. That's on my Bible, 1163. In the first uh, passage we read just now, it was speaking about God's grace to us. Now this passage is speaking about how we should show grace to other people. And he's speaking particularly here about uh, Christians who are quite well off, caring for those who are in poverty. And so this is what we read. Remember this, verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man or woman should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all times, having all that we need, you will abound in every good work. For as, as it is written, he has scattered abroad the gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. For this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in this, and in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you, Because of the surpassing grace God has given you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, in a moment, we'll turn back to Romans 3. But before we do, uh, let me say what a great privilege it is to be back with you in Bloomfield to renew fellowship with Damien. Uh, Frank is down, as you possibly know, in Valley Henry tonight, uh, commissioning those who have been involved in the accredited preachers and the auxiliary ministry scheme. Uh, at least one of them is from uh, Drogheda and one from Kilkenny. And if I had known about that, I would have been there instead tonight. But here we are. I'd already agreed with Damien uh, to be here before I discovered that two of our 
uh, young folk are in that, but we're delighted that Frank is down helping to commission them. So it's a great privilege to be with all of you tonight uh, and to come to this great theme that we've been given. Uh, the Latin words that were used at the time of the Reformation, sola gratia, by grace alone. Before we do that, let's take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you for the lovely songs that we've been singing, for this time of praise together and the reading of your word. Thank you for the great privilege of gathering together this evening. Thank you for the great theme that has been led before us. And now we simply ask that the Holy Spirit, who inspired your word, would become our teacher. And may your word do its appointed task. May it give light to our understanding. May it refresh the soul and rejoice the heart. For your great name's sake. Amen. Well, the name is Gronya in Irish. It's Charis in the language of the Bible, the New Testament in the Greek. And in English, we translate it grace. Three beautiful names, but all reflecting a beautiful attribute of God, because in the Bible calls him the God of all grace. It's probably true to say that almost every religion in the world uh, is about trying to earn favor with God. Hindu has the law of karma by which we pay for our wrongdoings in this life and the next. Islam has very little to say about forgiveness. Uh, we need to atone for our own sins. But when C.S. Lewis, who of course came from this part of the world, uh, was at a conference in world religions, he overheard some delegates discussing the characteristics of each different religion and they came to Christianity and he broke into their discussion and he said, that's easy. It's grace. According to C.S. Lewis, grace is the great key theme that makes the Christian message distinctive. But it was understanding what grace means that lay at the heart of that conflict and that ultimate spiritual revolution 500 years ago that we call the Reformation. Because sadly, the medieval church, the church of the Middle Ages, had drifted far away from the Bible and had developed an understanding of grace that was very different from that of the teaching of Scripture. And for the next two or three minutes, I want to fill in a little bit of that history. If you're not interested in the story of the church, you can go to sleep for about three or four minutes, and then we're going to come back to God's Word. But let me just explain a little bit of how the church drifted away from an understanding of grace that is taught in the Bible. I, let me just pick out two things that happened in the story of the church. Let's go way back to AD 400 when a, a monk called Jerome was invited by the Bishop of Rome to produce a Bible in the Latin language which would eventually become the official Bible of the Roman church. Now, sadly, most people didn't speak Latin so effectively the Bible was taken away from the ordinary people. It was in a language they didn't understand and it wasn't available to them. But also Jerome made some crucial mistakes in his translation from the original text into the Latin language. And one of those was the word repentance, which in the New Testament means to turn away from our sinful behavior and to turn to God. That's, we're told if we want to receive God's grace, we turn away from our sin and we turn to God. That's to repent, to turn around uh, from self-will and turn around to God. Uh, that's what the Bible means. But he put in a Latin word, penitentia, which means to do penance. And that gave the idea that we need to do something to earn God's forgiveness. Perhaps fasting or going on a pilgrimage or giving money or something. 
So the concept began to develop that we earn God's forgiveness by doing something. And this Vulgate version, as it was called, uh, the Latin Bible, uh, helped to encourage that idea. Let's move quickly on to the 12th century. And by that stage, the church had developed an understanding of grace which was almost akin to a, a banking system or a commercial system. They taught that there was, uh, under the authority of the church, what was called a treasury of merits. They taught that Christ had more than enough merit for himself, and so his surplus merit went into the treasury of merits, the, the saints, the Virgin Mary, and all of those, and so on. Their surplus merit went in there so that ordinary sinful mortals like the rest of us could uh, withdraw from the bank the treasury of merits. And one of the ways of doing that was to buy indulgence letters. And through buying those letters, it would help get you or your uh, dead relatives out of purgatory or lessen the time there and so on. So effectively, the concept of sorrow for sin, which lay originally behind the idea of indulgences, was lost. It became a commercial system. And so uh, when Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian priest in uh, Wittenberg in Germany, when he was hearing confession uh, from his prisoners, he was appalled to discover that hardly anybody was turning up. Because a man called Tetzel had come from Rome, and he effectively was a salesman of these indulgence letters. He had a little jingle, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And he effectively was simply selling forgiveness. And why would you bother going to confession if you could just buy it and get on with your life? And so Luther was appalled at this abuse of the idea of indulgences. He made a protest to his local archbishop. He was ignored. He was eventually ignored. Uh, by the Pope in Rome as well. It was seen as just a monkish quarrel, as he described it. And so he nailed his, what we call, 95 Theses to the door uh, of the church in Wittenberg, protesting against abuses in the church. And these were some of the words that he wrote. He said, the glory of the... Incidentally, the money was going to, from Germany into Italy to rebuild uh, St. Peter's Church in Rome. And so Luther wrote these words, the glory of the church is not St. Peter's in Rome, but the gospel. If the Pope has power to deliver souls from purgatory, why does he not just do so without taking money from the poor? He cannot remit sins. Only God can. And so Luther confronted the church at the time, and uh, events were to lead on to what we then call the Reformation. But it was primarily through his study of Scripture that his understanding of the word grace was transformed. And reading those words we've read a moment ago from Romans 3, the righteousness from God that comes through faith in Jesus for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. Luther again wrote these words. He said, night and day I had pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through sheer grace and mercy... God justifies us by, by faith. I felt myself to be reborn. The whole of Scripture took on a whole new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God was a term that filled me with hatred, now it became inexpressibly sweet and the gateway to heaven. And so he summed up his understanding, his new understanding of grace in this simple term, sola gratia, that God treats us by grace alone. We're forgiven not because of anything we do. We cannot earn it. We cannot work for it. God treats us by grace alone. But let's now, and we now turn to the Bible, and let's ask this question, what 
does the word grace actually mean? The church had lost its understanding of grace. Well, effectively it means the extreme generosity of God. And it's used in slightly different ways in the Bible. Sometimes it's referring to the lavishness of God's kindness and generosity. For example, John 1 says, from the fullness of His grace, we have received blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace. God is not stingy. He's not mean. He pours out His blessings with extreme generosity. Sometimes it refers to the costliness of God's dealings with us. Uh, You know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though He was rich, for our sakes became poor, so that we through his poverty might be made rich. And sometimes it stresses the undeserved nature of God's grace. Paul writes, the grace of God was poured out even on me abundantly, the chief of sinners. Paul can't stop talking about grace. We read from Romans already tonight twice, but there we find that we're justified by grace We stand in grace. We live under the reign of grace. We receive different gifts by His grace. He begins the letter by saying, Grace to you from God our Father. And he ends it by saying, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So grace lies at the very heart of the Christian message. But if all of that sounds a little bit theoretical, sometimes people say one picture is worth a thousand words. So let me give you three pictures, which I hope will be easier for us to hold on to which are visible demonstrations of the meaning of grace. The first one is God's common grace to all mankind and humankind in the world of creation. There is nothing at all miserly or stingy about God's creation. It's marked by an abundance almost to the point of extravagance and wastefulness. You've only got to look, for example, at the world of color that God has made, the lavish colors of reds and orange and yellows and greens and pinks and mauves and violets and heliotropes and every shade in between. It's a wonderfully colorful world we live in, and it's carpeted with all kinds of plants from mosses and lichens and fungi and algae and trees and grasses and flowering plants from a simple little violet right through to exotic orchids, Uh, and it's such a, a world teeming with life from the humble bacteria right through to the great blue whale and from a Siberian tiger to the crazy duck-billed platypus and over one million species of insects alone. A world just teeming with living things and a world that is fruitful in an extreme, providing us with not just our daily bread as we pray for in the Lord's Prayer, but with maize and with rice and with wheat and with vegetables and spices and rye and wheats and barley and oats and potatoes and cocoa and tea and coffee, and so we could go on. So if you want to see an evidence of God's common grace, go to the food shelves in Marks and Spencer's, and there you will see something of the lavish grace of God, His common grace to all mankind in creation. So there's the first illustration illustration of God's grace, his extreme generosity in the world of nature. But we come secondly to God's saving grace to his people in salvation. The life and ministry of Jesus are marked from start to finish by grace. When Paul is writing to Titus, he speaks about the birth of Jesus. He says simply the grace of God has appeared. That's how Jesus was described when he was born. The grace of God has appeared. 
when he went about his earthly life as a carpenter moving about in Galilee, we're told that he was full of grace and truth. When he began teaching his parables to the people, we're told that they were astonished at the gracious words that proceeded from his mouth. We see his grace in his attitudes, welcoming those that society rejected and telling those wonderful stories of the prodigal being welcomed home by his father, this undeserving son. But we see it supremely in the cross, and that's what we've been singing about a moment ago. Because in the cross, God had to find a way of doing what seemed to be the impossible. It may seem rather strange to speak of an omnipotent God who is all-powerful, and yet God had only one problem. God had no problem with creation at all. He could simply speak and the world came into being. We're told he said, let there be light and there was light. That was no difficulty to God. But when it came to the problem of dealing with your sin and mine, our rebellion, if you like, God faced what seemed an impossible problem to solve. Because let's read what it says in the book of Exodus because God here is speaking as a God who is just and holy. And there we read, God says, I will not acquit the guilty. God is a God of justice. He will not acquit the guilty. But in Romans 4, we read that he is the God who justifies the wicked. Now, how can he be a God who will not acquit the guilty and yet be a God who does justify the wicked and the guilty? How can God be just on the one hand and yet justify people who are guilty on the other? That's what Paul is asking us in this chapter in Romans 3. How can God do it? And God found the solution in the cross where God's own Son bore the guilt and the punishment we deserve so that we receive the pardon and the welcome into His fellowship that we do not deserve. There's this amazing exchange that goes on in the cross where God made the impossible possible. He made possible that guilty, sinful people like us could be justified and made acceptable in His sight. The gospel offends our natural way of thinking. If we're not surprised by the gospel, we haven't understood it. Paul writes this, when we were still his enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of a son. There's a lovely story told uh, in a book by Philip Yancey. It was reported in the Boston Globe of a very unusual wedding reception in Boston. A young woman and her fiancé had spent over $20,000 in preparing a magnificent reception in the Hyatt Hilton Hotel, the most delicate china, uh, the most beautiful silver, and the most wonderful floral displays, exotic menu, a big band to follow. No expense was spared on this reception. But at the very last moment, the, the groom pulled out of the wedding. And the young bride had already paid the bill. And when she went to reclaim and to cancel the wedding, she was told that she'd entered a contract and there would be no refund. So she had to make a decision. Uh, she had lived herself for a part of her life in a homeless shelter in the city. She'd been homeless for quite a time, but uh, someone had helped her. She had escaped the poverty trap and now had a good job. So she decided the party will go ahead. So on the day that was planned for the wedding, the Hyatt Hilton Hotel hosted... Uh, a wedding party such as had never been seen there before. Invitations had gone out to the homeless shelters, the bums and the vagrants and drug addicts who were used to picking up 
pizza crust from bins. We're dining on the, the finest food served by waiters in tuxedos, uh, eating chocolate wedding cake, sipping champagne, dancing to a big band. It was an incredible party, and one can only imagine a tramp at that party, and someone saying to him, what on earth are you doing here? And pulling out of his pocket a crumpled invitation and said, well, I was invited. It seems too good to be true. If we don't think the gospel is too good to be true, we haven't understood it. I remember a vivid illustration of this in my own experience, if you'll excuse me telling it. When I left the work I was doing prior to entering Christian ministry, uh, I went into the, the college in Belfast. I hadn't too much money at the time. I had, was still trying to keep a car on the road and keep a, a mortgage paid on the house, and here I was as a student. But I had begun to go out with a girl, Sandra here, who's sitting beside me, and it was in our early days, and I was trying to impress my new date. And I think it was her birthday, so I decided for her birthday to go along to the Scandia restaurant that many of you will remember in the center of Belfast. But I was a little short in cash, and when we got in there, I looked at the menu, and I added up the prices of the main course and the, the desserts and the coffee, and I began to get a little anxious. What about VAT? What about service charge? And I, I thought it would be extremely embarrassing on a date to go up to pay for a bill and not have enough money. So I pretended that I really didn't want a dessert. I'd just go in for a main course. And so we settled for a main course and a coffee. And all the way through that main course, I couldn't help but looking at the Mississippi mud pie and the baked Alaska and the pavlovas. And if you remember how the Scandia described those things, you could almost taste them uh, with the description. Anyway, we got through the meal. I had enough money, I think, to pay for it. It went up anyway to, to pay for the meal. And the chap at the counter, when I asked for the bill, he said, uh, where were you sitting? And I pointed to the chair. He said, your meal has been paid for. I said, no, no, I'm just coming to pay for it now. He said, no, I think your meal has been paid for. And I was puzzled, to say the least. And he said, let me get the manager. The manager came out and he said, yes, there was a man sitting. And he pointed to another table. He was sitting there. And when he went out, he said, I want to pay for that couple. Now, I didn't know what to think. If only I'd known. <laughs> I would have had four desserts. But I remember walking out onto the street thinking, this can't be true. It was all paid for. If only I'd known, I, I truly would have enjoyed that meal much more. But it's an amazing thing to realize that something is paid for completely, and all I had to do was to enjoy it, to enter in, and to be grateful. And it so happened some years later, I didn't, never, I didn't find out for some years later who had paid for that meal. It was a friend of a friend who simply took pity on a student uh, back at college and thought maybe he would help out with his generosity. But there's something amazing about the gospel to discover that literally there's nothing we need to do. It's all been done. There's nothing we need to pay or can pay because it all has been paid. We don't have to hope for it or work for it or uh, anxiously hope that we've reached a certain standard. It's a gift of God's grace, his kindness to you. And that means, and here's the lovely thing, that all of us are welcome. doesn't matter who you are what background you've come from, what you've done, whether you think you're a good person or a bad person, religious or irreligious, uh, from one denomination of the church or another, it makes no difference whatsoever. The gospel is God's welcome to all. All may come. All come on exactly the same basis. It is by grace, 
by God's extreme kindness and generosity that we are saved through faith. And perhaps you're here tonight and you're still trying to understand the gospel. Well, understand it in this one word. It's God's extreme generosity to you and to all of us here. You're welcome. He wants you to come into his family to receive his forgiveness, to receive his pardon, to receive full status as his child, as a son and his daughter, and as an heir of heaven itself. Graham Kendrick wrote a lovely hymn, The Price is Paid, Come Let Us Enter In to All That Jesus Died to Make Our Own. So those are two illustrations of God's extreme generosity, his common grace to all people in creation, his saving grace to his people in salvation. But there's a third place that we hope that we will see the grace of God. And that's in the lives of those who have come to Christian faith. In the lives of those who have received God's grace, then that grace should be shown and demonstrated. Let me just give you three examples of how that might be the case. We could use many others, but I've simply picked on three. First of all, how do we respond to the gospel? Here's how Paul puts it. In the light of God's mercies, he says, present your whole selves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him. In other words, half-hearted Christianity is a contradiction in terms. If we are lukewarm about the Christian faith, we haven't understood the gospel. You know that lovely incident in the gospels where Jesus meets an immoral woman, she's called in the Bible, a prostitute. She comes in, she breaks into a meal that he's having with a rather religious individual called Simon. She takes out a bottle of very expensive perfume, a year's wages, we're told. She breaks it and she pours it over his feet in an act of extravagant gratitude for all that he's done for her, her gratitude for his forgiveness. She cannot give enough in response to his kindness to her. Meanwhile, Simon stands uptight and aloof, this Bible-believing, Sabbath-keeping Pharisee muttering his disapproval. And what does Jesus say? She who has been forgiven much has loved much. And so, if we've understood the gospel, we will never be asking, how little can I get away with and still call myself a Christian? But we will want to echo the words of Isaac Watts, where the whole realm of nature mine, that we're offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We will want to give our lives back to God in gratitude with all our hearts, with all our energies, uh, and with all our enthusiasm. But there's a second place that God's grace will be seen in our lives, and that is in our giving, financial giving to the work of God's kingdom. Notice the words we read a few moments ago. Paul says that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was rich for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. And then he goes on to say this. He says, don't give a penny to the work of God's kingdom that you don't give gladly and joyfully and sacrificially, for God loves a cheerful giver. Actually, he doesn't want our money at all. He wants our hearts. And our giving of money is simply an expression of how we feel about him. And notice he goes on to say this, if we sow sparingly, then we will reap sparingly. If we give sacrificially, he says, it's a win, win, win situation because the needy are helped 
God is glorified and we are blessed. If we are miserly and stingy, all three parties miss out. So the grace of God is seen in our response to the gospel and it's seen in our giving to the work of the kingdom. But finally, it's seen in our relationship with other people. Again, remember the story Jesus told of a man who uh, owed a, a large amount of money to a neighbor and he couldn't pay it, but he pleaded for mercy and the, the man showed him compassion and canceled his debt. He then went along to a man who owed him a relatively small amount. That man could not pay the money. He had him thrown in prison. And of course, the point Jesus is making is a very simple one. If God has canceled us our great debts, how much more should we forgive others who we consider have debts towards us? If we have been treated with mercy by God, then we will treat others with mercy. If we've received his grace, then we will demonstrate grace to others. If we've been forgiven at such great cost, then we will gladly forgive others their wrongs against us. If God has reached to us while we were still his enemies, then we will reach out to those who we consider to be our enemies. So sola gratia is not a slogan of the Reformation. It should be the mark of the Christian life. The Christian should be the most humble, the most thankful, the most generous, the most gracious of all people, the most quick to forgive, the slowest to take offense, the most willing to reach out even to enemies and to make peace. Remember again what C.S. Lewis said about what is the characteristic mark of the Christian faith. He said, that's easy, it's grace. Wouldn't it be a lovely thing if the people who are our neighbors in this neighborhood of Bloomfield Presbyterian Church were asked, what is the chief mark of the people who go along to that church there? If someone could tap them on the shoulder and say, well, that's easy. It's grace. God is the God of grace and he expects us as well to reflect that grace that we have received from him. Let's take a moment to pray and then let's pray. Father, thank you that you're the God of all grace, that you treat us with such amazing, lavish, sacrificial generosity. Lord, if we've never done so, help us to embrace your grace in Jesus Christ, and then, Lord, help us to show it for your name's sake. Amen. Damien has asked me to say the grace, and I, I don't know if it's your tradition or not to say it together, but could I invite you to join with me as we pray for each other in the words of the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.